This is Kara Kandel here with another week of the learning curve. This week, I'm thinking about all things micro, all things mini, all things teeny, teeny, tiny, and small. And um, Gerard, what would you say is your favorite micro thing? Favorite? You don't. You don't strike me as like a Mini Cooper kind of guy. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't mind. No, I, know, like, I, I, I think like, you're right because you know, nothing comes to mind. Um, nothing mini like Hershey's no. miniatures Gerard like well I don't eat candy be- I mean, I don't eat, well I can't eat oh. that because it has milk and I'm a non-dairy guy oh man um, you're killing yeah, me I'm, yeah I, on this one I'm no help I can't think of anything mini maybe mini mouse mini. your kids, your kids were mini ones your kids were mini ones well doing Thanksgiving not Thanksgiving doing Halloween they get a lot of mini candies but I was never a big snacker for candy so I can't say the mini thing but like I, just, I like I like mini mouse so I guess that's the closest so virtuous it's so difficult to do this with someone so virtuous I gotta <laughs> tell you because I just ate um a bunch of mini candy bars right before we started recording the mm, show because- also you're actually looking for some comfort yeah. Yeah. I oh, I see. Well, you know what? I just had five mini beers <laughs> on, my, on this end. All I my would, all, I micro would never mini, have a mini beer, Gerard. I would have like a maybe a micro brew, but it would probably be in a big old pint glass. But you know, I'm a Michigan. I'm a Michigander. I'm a Michigan girl. All right, away from the alcohol and the chocolate. And, and on to and on to headier things, beer head headier things. Okay, so Gerard, I think uh, many in our education policy circles are talking about this next article. I did read the full report today, but we're going to talk about one that was written in the seventy four uh, by Linda Jacobson, and she's talking about a new report out from the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and this one is um, by two very well known economists, um, Ludger Vosman, I probably said that correctly, apologies, and Eric Hanushek, and so what they're talking about in this study is basically the impact of learning of school closures and the impact of learning loss. Now, we've seen about what um, McKinsey, for example, McKinsey and Company had a pretty good report out a little while back about learning loss and the, the impacts on individuals and the impacts on dropout rates. And, and they had a mention in there about, um, about individual lifetime earnings going down as a result of school closures. But here, I'm going to just qu- a quote from the article in the 74, um, they're, they're saying that in the U.S., school closures could ultimately amount to a loss of almost $14.2 trillion over the next wow. 80 trillion. I was listening to uh, – no, I never listened to another podcast. I only listened to us, of course. Of but, course. Okay, I, I'll lie. I was listening to um, somebody talk about something in my ears the other day, and, and, and it was an economist saying – Try and imagine the difference between like a billion and a trillion. He's like, if you actually think about it, a trillion is – a ridiculous, ridiculous amount of money, but $14.2 trillion because of learning loss. And what they're saying, though, is that this could be recouped. 
um, if we start to think differently about school, if we start individualizing the instruction, students work at their own speed to master academic goals, et cetera, which is making me really excited for our upcoming conversation. I mean, it's an exciting day for me because we could talk about all things mini and micro and chocolate and beer, but also um, micro schools, which are all about individualizing instruction. So that is my story of the week. And oh, I actually, Gerard, I promised you I was going to mention one more thing. Mm-hmm. And that is another way we could individualize instruction. We're seeing this in a couple different states now. And most recently, Idaho has just announced um, direct payments to family with some of the state's COVID relief monies. So direct payments to families are a way, for example, to allow families that couldn't otherwise afford it to hire tutors to um, purchase online education that might be more personalized or maybe mm-hmm. a lot of money to pay for a pandemic pod, a micro school, et cetera. So see, there you go. I did it. Two stories in one, Gerard. <laughs> and I like both of your stories. I like the first one because I actually watched Eric Hanushek and his colleague live uh, OECD uh, a few days ago. And Eric sent me a copy of his paper in advance. And it was just wonderful to see the international conversation. But uh, those numbers and the learning loss are pretty tough. And for Idaho, I'm glad to hear that in part because I am trying to figure out ways of encouraging um, people in different states to to do the same thing. So it's good to know that some of our our governors are leading in that way. Well, you had two happy stories. My story is somewhat happy, but somewhat sad. So this is from The Atlantic, and it's by Emma Green. And uh, the title is The Pandemic as parents fleeing from schools, maybe forever. Now, the good thing about the article is she interviews a number of academic-based scholars to talk about, uh, you know, the pros and cons. And she's, you know, got some good people across the way. It was great to see uh, someone who I actually know who participated in an event I had uh, at CAO, um, uh, Cheryl, she's a professor at the University of Georgia, and she writes a great deal. Her name is Cheryl Field Smith, and she's an associate professor at the University of Georgia, and she studies black homeschoolers. And she had a really good quote uh, about this, and she says, if you think about the American culture, it's a lot about rugged individualism. And so in her way, she sees parents' desire to at least look at homeschooling, to look at pods or micro schools as something positive. The the negative thing about the story is the fact that we keep using words like fleeing or somehow parents are panicked and therefore they're going to reach out for the first thing they can grab onto. For some parents, that's true. But I would rather, you know, people I've talked to, frankly, they don't see it fleeing from public schools Mm. as much as fleeing to something different. And Mm -hmm. some of them don't see this as a panic, oh my God, the world's going to end as much as, you know what, the world's opened up in a new way. And so there are multiple roads that people are taking. Uh, While Emma said, you know, they may be leaving forever. I don't think that's true. Public education is here to stay. The majority of our children will remain in public schools for the foreseeable future and an option should be available. But I do believe that there are some parents who are fleeing toward something new and exciting and untried. And I'm glad to see that. Yeah, I like that take on it, George. I've been, I mean, you know, we've all been thinking about this a lot lately, those of us who spend our days immersed in school stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I have to agree with you. I, you know, this has been a cataclysmic event in many ways, but I don't think that this is somehow the cataclysm that fundamentally like busts up the way we do things in public education in this country. I think Mm -hmm. there'll be some absolute playing around the edges that will be really, really productive. But I do agree with you that at the end of the day, we need to think about supporting our public systems in a way, in ways that make a big difference for parents, right? So we have noticed that so many, um, and you know, we could do bad story after bad story about what we're seeing in districts right now. It's all out there. But there are also mm-hmm. some really good stories too. And But I think that the challenge that we see that districts are really facing is that teachers and administrators, they care about kids and they see exactly the needs we're highlighting on the learning curve every week. It's just that sometimes bureaucracies... <laughs> First of all, they have a lot more stakeholders to deal with, and we can Mm -hmm. do another 10 shows on that, right? But they're also just slower to change. And so there are really great stories out there about districts trying to start learning hubs. I will add the words for free in there that could serve parents that might otherwise feel like they need to flee the system because either they're not getting what they want in terms of just straight up like childcare, I have to go to work and who's going to oversee the schooling. But I don't think, I think that some parents to your point will find alternatives. They're not necessarily fleeing, but they have seen that there's maybe another way. And I, my great hope is that our public system will learn from this instead of criticizing it, which we're also seeing some of, right? Oh, if you, if you parent leave the public system, you're ruining everybody else's opportunity. I, I think that that's scary stuff. Uh, but I, th- I hope that our public districts will learn from, from these articles and these sentiments. And there was at least one professor uh, in the article who was at least alluding to, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And so if I can take a play on an REM song, uh, it's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's the case, but if it's the end of one way of thinking about teaching and learning, okay. then I feel fine. Oh, you're singing again. I'm singing also again. revealing our age and general demographic. <laughs> all good. It's all good. Kamala Harris was wearing Converse sneakers. Did you see that photo? I did not. <laughs> Gen Xers, baby. Here the we- old Chucks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> REM. All right. Well, to the point that you just made, I think that it's not the end of the world, but we're going to continue to see some great innovations. And our next guest is, in. I think we've probably mentioned his name and or his organization on here several times. We've finally uh, been able to find some time to get him on. He's a busy guy. But Kelly Smith is the founder of Prenda Education. And um, so this is, you know, it, it's just a really interesting story about how he came to this. He's going to finally define for us what a micro school is. And um, because I think that that's sometimes the topic is the term is up for debate. And um, we're also going to learn about how this organization and parents and communities are tinkering around the edges to come up with new educational experiences. So we will be back right after this. Today, we're very happy to have with us Kelly Smith. He is the founder and CEO of Prenda, an education company that helps people run micro schools out of their homes. He's been obsessed with learning and building since childhood, from a neighborhood baseball card business to a rap album, I love it, maybe he'll rap for us later, to a line of cleaning products to high energy laser physics. 
After earning a master's degree in nuclear fusion from MIT, Kelly served in engineering and marketing roles at various technology companies before selling a small software business in clean energy. He started volunteering with an after-school code club at the local public library, helping kids learn computer programming, and he was so excited about the power of self-learning that he started a micro-school around his kitchen table in January 2018. Kelly lives in Mesa, Arizona with his wife and four children, and Kelly, I love this bio because <laughs> it is rare that we have a guest that has that's everything from, you know, a rap album to... Um, to laser physics and, and that, you know, it's just like such a, a different path, shall we say, to it, founding it's a beautiful an life, educational Lo- Lots to do. Lots to it's, do. Uh, it's, it's really quite amazing. And right, you were right here in our backyard at MIT. So, okay. Um, listen, whatever prescient notion you had at the time, um, what you're doing, my friend was, it was, it was, Definitely catching on pre-pandemic and boy, oh boy, is, is it like a household word now, micro school. Um, so I'm Absolutely. really curious as I, I, it must be a wild ride. I want to hear about that, but I'm also really curious first for you to just tell us a little bit about the founding of Prenda. And if you could tell us exactly what you call a micro school, exactly what you think a micro school is. I was having a, a debate with a colleague today who said, I think we're talking about different sure. things. So let's yeah, and, micro and school. Micro school. Yeah, yeah sure. go ahead. Well, micro school has been a term and, and I kind of, when I first started, so I, I had seven kids around my kitchen table, as you, uh, you read in the bio, Kara. Um, basically the idea was I saw kids that cared about learning. There's this great Plutarch quote that I always go back to, you know, ancient Rome and um, and it says, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. Uh, and, and with seven kids around my kitchen table that I got to know really well, and I got to understand each one of them and how they tick and what motivates them, it was definitely an opportunity to kindle fires and uh, experience the joy of learning and creating together. And once I experienced that, I, I couldn't stop. It was, uh, it was definitely my goal to bring this love of learning and this uh, really practice, this safe zone for practicing becoming a learner to as many kids as I could reach. Um, for us, a micro school, it was seven at the beginning, but we've capped it at 10 kids. They meet in informal spaces, um, you know, back classroom in a community center, an empty conference room in an office. Uh, a lot of them meet in homes. So it doesn't have to be a specific location, but up to 10 kids with an adult who cares about them. And that, that adult, I'm sure we'll talk about playing the role of a a learning guide. Now, what you'll see is is lots of examples, and people are calling them micro schools. I would call them mini schools, kind of seventy five mm-hmm. or eighty kids, but they tend to have a lot of the same sort of structural constraints: a, a building that they have to buy or lease, uh, you know, an on staff administration of some sort. So you have kind of the the trimmings of a regular school, but just put together in a uh, in a smaller setting. Uh, for us, you know, micro school really takes it one step further and says. This is right down to the core, uh, the bare bones of what learning is all about, which is a young human being grappling with content and, and information and creating and discovering and doing that in the guidance and support of peers and an adult who, who cares about them. 
Okay. So adult guided and also peer to peer in many ways, it sounds like, but so here's a question that I, um, I get from friends when I'm, you know, at a dinner party. Well, I mean, I used to go to dinner parties explaining this <laughs> to folks. Right. And one of the things they say is, well, but how does that work? If it's, is it one teacher? And what if you have really multi-age now, my own children are Montessori. So I have experienced a multi-age sure. classroom, but can you talk a little bit about um, about the, the role of the guide and, yeah. you know, do you have to have somebody that is qualified to teach pre-calculus as well as pre-kindergarten? How does that work? Yeah, great question. And, and if you look um, at our kind of traditional education system of today, uh, there's a lot asked of that person we call the teacher. Everything from creating content to delivering information to evaluating the work um, on top of all of these human connection, supporting, uh, motivating, inspiring, um, and then, you know, connecting this all to some broader pedagogical background. Um, It's a pretty tall order. Some people would say impossible. I've heard uh, people here at at the Arizona Arizona State Teachers College refer to it as an impossible (laughs) job. Um, Yeah, yes, okay. (laughs) I I think as you think about all of that, there's this underlying assumption, which is, is vessel filling. If you go back to the Plutarch quote, most people in their mind, as they think about education, imagine some form of children showing up, receiving knowledge, right? School is a thing that happens to you and the teacher's the one that does it. So the, the education is in his or her hands. The teacher's responsible for making sure that this content gets transmitted into these brains by this date when we take the test and hope that, that it was uh, retained long enough. And, and that's worked okay. I would argue that for us, uh, we've really tried something different. We've said, if it's about kindling a fire, which I believe it is, then how can we open that up and how can we create as many options as possible? Uh, one of the things right off the bat that you get to is, is pace and, uh, and choice and autonomy in terms of setting your, your learning path. So, We've adopted at Prenda, we've made the choice to orient everything around uh, academic standards, the same math and English standards that everybody would get. But instead of giving it to the teacher and saying, here, take these standards and and impart them or or put them into the minds of these children on this kind of, they'll use words like scope and sequence, like over this Mm -hmm. period of time, make sure these kids get this content. Instead of doing it that way, we've flipped it around. We've said, okay, kids. Here's everything that the state of Arizona or the state of Massachusetts wants you to learn uh, about math and in this thing that we call third grade, right? And so here's the third grade math standards. You learn them and we've structured it in a way that the kids will create their own um, daily goals. We have a system that the kids are able to enter those goals and kind of keep track of their progress towards the standard. They're taking formative assessments so they always know what they understand and what they don't understand and they can see it visually. So they're working towards mastery of third grade math. And, and they're able to do that in a way that, that feels much more empowering to them, much more engaging because they're driving the education. And what that also does then is it frees up now, um, one, every kid in the room could be working on something different and often is working on something different. So it's not wait until uh, you know next week when we get to something that I don't know or or maybe give up because I don't know what the teacher's talking about. So I just think of myself as dumb and, and sort of check out in the back of the room. Uh, everybody's engaged. Everybody's at, you know, what they call the, the learning frontier or the 
academics call this the zone of proximal development, but it's basically like mm-hmm. what you know, where, what, what you know meets what you don't know. And we want to get every kid there as quickly as possible and spend really all of our time educating right at that line because we, because that's where learning grows. And we, we think that's where the skills are built and the confidence is acquired as well. So hopefully that gives you a little picture. The adult is is guiding that process. And I appreciate the term zone of proximal development as a former um, employee of a teacher's college. I, you know, it's one of the good things that we talk about, but also when I heard you say the word impossible, it always gives me a little pause because I always think very few teachers, I think, find things impossible. But sometimes we who have been put in charge of teacher training (laughs) like to see things as impossible. (laughs) So I like, I like your spirit. Okay. So this, you've, you've got... Um, a different approach to learning, both in terms of, you know, structure and how content is delivered or maybe not delivered, right? Or not imparted. And you've got uh, access, right? And so, so it's, it's a, it's a totally different model, but Prenda has, since the time you started it, like I said, at the outset, even before the pandemic, when people started asking questions like, hmm, I wonder what I can do in a small group out of my home. Um, this was this idea was really catching on and Prenda was expanding. And I imagine today um, you're getting a lot of phone calls. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey to bring this model that you developed around your kitchen table to to more families, to different places across the country? And also, you sure. know, what is it looking like in this particular moment? Yeah, great question. So as I was sitting there around the kitchen table, one, I didn't have the learning model built. I had some insights because I had been volunteering for five years with kids at the library uh, in the specific domain of computer programming. But I hadn't had a, you know an education background. I didn't have any content or curriculum built. I knew where to find standards aligned curriculum. I knew that projects would be fun. And so I was literally Googling and finding projects with with basically just a paper version of a model, I was able to see one-on-one these kids get to these moments where the fire was lit, where they believed that they could learn anything they wanted. And I would see them dive into an area that they were interested in. They would build a project. They would share it with their friends. And there were these moments of, of catching fire that um, I remember sending a message early on in the process before we really had anything built yet. And I sent it to uh, some friends. I said, you guys, I've, I've seen the future and I've seen what education can be for these kids. And it was exactly what I would have loved as a, a young student and what I wanted for my own kid, one of whom was in the class. And so that was nice to be able to see, see him mm-hmm. engage with it, but, but my friend's kids too. And, and so the question from that point on was like, well, what, what is it about what I'm doing that, um, you know, that we're looking for and, and what would it take for more people to do it? So the next semester I found two friends who were willing to start micro schools in their house. And by this point, we had some basic software written. I had some curriculum designed and, and we were accessing a lot of third-party kind of open educational resources. So we had uh, a learning model and, and some core scaffolding to give them. But the customer support for these, these new learning guides was my cell phone. They would call me, <laughs> hey, what do I do about this? And, and how do I engage? Um, what do I do when a child is you know, not wanting to learn? And what do you do when there's a behavior challenge? And what do you do if they're really feeling frustrated? Uh, and we were, you know, a lot of that was discovering together. But fortunately, we were able to figure out that having a, a real strong commitment to these kind of core philosophical principles was was very empowering. And it was able to 
um, get us through a lot. Now, not to uh, take away from the problem solving, I'm fortunate now to have a large team of, you know, something, something like 70 plus people working on this, everything from designing projects to, you know, monitoring academic progress in the back end. And we've really just gradually been able to build out services and supports so that anybody, and this is our, our vision, is that anybody who loves kids and is willing to be there with them and engage with them to help them learn, that they're able to succeed as a learning guide. We've taken away some of the scientific parts of that role and said, let's, let's leverage those professional expertise in different ways. And so we've hired um, you know, professionals that understand special ed and people that are you know, certified curriculum designers and people that have lots of that background, but they're able to uh, create and design. And then the learning guide is able to focus on helping these kids one on one, you know, solve that puzzle of what is it that makes you tick? What what gets you excited? And how can you get to a point where you own your own learning and, and love it? Wow. And in in this moment, um, are you, I assume so? You say you know, like over time you've grown, but really, if you started this in 2018, that's pretty rapid growth. Has yeah. a lot of that been in the past, um, you know, six to eight months since we've all been experiencing this, or uh, we, was it prior to that? Yeah, we've definitely seen a strong interest um, during the COVID pandemic. I think two things happened. One, you know, school wasn't on. There was no, uh, the, the alternative option was, didn't exist the way it had existed before. So that raised a lot of open questions. The other thing that was happening was uh, school was sent home. And so parents got to kind of get a front row seat on, you know, what it, exactly is it pedagogically and academically that's yeah. happening. And, and many parents, you know, had thoughts about that. So I would definitely say um, COVID's raised questions. Interestingly, looking back, uh, we've grown a lot this summer, but it was roughly equivalent to the growth rate we had last summer. So it actually okay. on a percentage percentage basis, it wasn't that different. And, and part of that was we were pretty picky about um, not trying to be a kind of a COVID band-aid solution. When mm -hmm. people would say, we just need something for two weeks until the school's open, we would say, well, uh, we don't think this is a good fit, like really would want you to do it because you agree with us about what education can and, and should be. And so we were literally turning people away, which, you know, I think is part of why it, it wasn't extreme growth, but we definitely saw um, a strong increase in the numbers of people that the are interested. interest. Okay. Now at the risk of Gerard completely firing me as his co-host, I have to ask one more, hopefully pithy question. Sure. I'm not good at pith, but we're going to try. So you're in Arizona. Uh, lots of parent choice, education, savings accounts, all kinds of mechanisms that allow people from diverse socioeconomic backgrounds to access homeschooling, for example. Does that make a difference sure. to your model and the people that you're able to reach? Absolutely. Arizona's uh, policies have, have been supportive of giving parents options for their kids uh, for a long time. And what that's led to is a culture where parents uh, feel empowered and they feel very comfortable uh, making a decision for their own children. So there's a process, um, you know, parents in Massachusetts say they might, um, they might uh, just assume you just go to the school because that's what the, uh, you know, the map says. But in Arizona, it's, it's very common for parents to say, well, what are our options? What can we look at? Uh, so having that as the, the background uh, has definitely opened up um, you know, possibility for this to get off the ground. That said, our, our goal is to bring this to other children and, and make this available 
Um, and we're currently looking at, at states where, uh, where we can work through partnerships with district or charter schools. Um, that would include potentially Massachusetts and in terms of finding um, ways to offer this for, um, you know, for free to the parents using state, state dollars for education. Come on over. We would like to see that here. <laughs> sure. Great. Hey, Kelly, this is Gerard from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Hi, Gerard. So I mentioned Charlottesville in part because I'm thinking about uh, Professor Edie Hurst, Jr. And uh, his organization, in fact, is located a few blocks away from my office. So for decades, advocates of core academic knowledge have said that the achievement gap that we see in our country really between wealthier and poor families is really a opportunity or better yet a knowledge gap. It's not per se income, it's just a knowledge gap. So sure. what is your organization doing to, empl uh, to employ tools or strategies to ensure that all children have access to a wide background of knowledge similar to what students receive in elite public schools, charter schools, or even some of our parochial schools? Yeah, that's a, a really great and important question. So I would say I would look at two levels on that. Jared, I would look first at the structure of it. So you've seen over the last just couple months during COVID, there's been a rise in pods and, and micro schools mm -hmm. and homeschooling. Um, much of this has been limited to the domain of, you know, people who can practically and legally homeschool, right? So somebody who has the means of, of either bringing a, a tutor in or somebody that can help, or I can stay home and, and be with the kids and, and help with that. That's uh, not, a, as many of us know, right? That's not a realistic uh, possibility for everyone. So really what we've tried to do as an answer to that is structure these micro schools in a way that, that really is community driven. So you'll have, uh, for example, somebody in the community, I'm thinking of a, a recent partnership that, that's just getting off the ground. We're working with the Black Mothers Forum of Phoenix. This is a group in, in South Phoenix. It's a lower income community where there's just a, a powerful group of moms who have kind of banded together and support each other in a variety of, of issues. Well, they've decided that one of the things that would be really helpful as a service to their community is to create some micro schools. And so we've been the provider mm -hmm. of, of the core academic model and they run the micro schools. So they, three, three different classes, one for the younger kids, the middle kids and the older kids. And they've put together these micro schools that will all three meet in their community center that already exists. And uh, kids from that neighborhood will come down and, and participate. And they've even augmented what we've given them, which is core academics. And they've added you know, additional services and extracurriculars and some of the things that were needed by their community. So we think it's a model that's really promising and we're excited to uh, work together with a variety of communities to be able to provide, uh, you know, to help them find the, the benefits of, of this type of micro school structure, which is really flexible and, and, and open um, relative to kind of your, your traditional school. That's a good real world example. I want to unpack that just one more step. So in a previous sure. life, I worked with an organization that actually worked with black moms, dads, grandparents, and others who wanted different options. What in particular, you know, galvanized these moms to say, this is what we want to do. And unless it's something you can't share, what's the socioeconomic background or education, if you know it, of the black moms you're talking about? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I know some of this, but I, I feel like you should talk to them to get the, the full story. These are, uh, again, incredible, inspiring, um, empowered people that care a lot about their community and they work together. Uh, they, they support each other in delivering these services. So I, I'd love for you to meet them and get to know them. We're going to try to work together to get a case study out so people can learn more about the situation. Um, but I think that's all I feel comfortable saying right now. No, totally understandable. And part of it is people sometimes fail to realize that unless you are the Huxtables, uh, at one time, I guess when I could say that as a show, or mm, if you're right. blackish, um, that these are the only parents involved when there's a wide range of parents from Title I to blackish Correct. type parents who are doing this work. So uh, we could talk offline because I'd love to learn more about that. When you were answering Certainly. one of uh, Cara's 8,000 questions that she somehow seemed <laughs> to have got in this time, uh, you talked about assessment. And I'm up front. I believe we should assess children uh, because sure. it's a roadmap on developmental needs and strengths. And you already gave us an idea of some of the assessments you're doing. How do, how do some of the parents, for example, if you've got a parent who says, listen, the assessment only tells you so much about my child. It doesn't give you a whole picture. How do you respond to yep. parents who raised that question? We agree wholeheartedly with those parents. And we say, hey, you're right. You know, let's celebrate where your kids are strong. I'm thinking of one of the classes that I had. There was a, a boy in there that was, uh, I think, a fifth grader. He was a little slower to read. And it was, um, you know, it was a struggle for him still to be able to, to read things. And so we would participate in, in something that was very letters heavy as a class activity. Say, you know, we would do a Socratic discussion around an article and one of the kids would choose the article and, and he would struggle. He'd feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not there. You know, he's maybe fifth grade and, and some of the other kids were fourth. And he felt like, oh, I'm getting, you know, you know how humans are. We, we make comparisons. And it was fascinating. One of the days uh, we organized a field trip to go visit the public library and the librarian had let us access the, uh, the robots. There was like late Lego robots at this place. And it was fascinating how the whole thing flipped around for this boy. Instead of being the one that was feeling um, dumb or, or feeling like the, the one mm -hmm. that was behind, he was the star. I mean, everybody was gathered around looking at him and he's explaining, this is how you hook up this motor this way so that this arm can go up. And, and they're just like amazed. I mean, it was practically like a, a standing ovation. And, and I, I thought, you know, how poignant this is that you have, you know, a, a basically a one-dimensional system of, of assessing academics. And I'm not trying to undermine, we, we worked hard with him on reading and math, and I still believe those, those will be worthwhile skills for his life. But for him to also have these moments where we're doing something completely different than that, and he can see and experience his genius and understand that uh, there's no, you know, fundamental difference in the value of, of two different human beings, you know, we're just we're different and we have our gifts and abilities and we all have something to contribute. So that's my answer to those parents. Now, in terms of, are we focused on the standards? Absolutely. We have what we call conquer mode where the kids work at their own pace. They're focused on math, reading, writing, and English language um, kind of conventions and it's mastery based. So we know at any given point where the, the child is. And I think more importantly than that, they know, the child knows, and the child sends a weekly update home to their parents. So it can be a, a constant quest as opposed to a, you know, a progress report or a parent-teacher conference or a, you know, some of these 
traditional mechanisms where you kind of get the information after the fact, so, you know, a letter grade or something. It's like, oh, well, you were about 73%, you know, instead of that, it's like, you are at 73 right now. And with additional work, you can be at 75 and 80 and 85 and 90. And, and so there's this constant reinforcement of a growth mindset. These kids can see learning as a, as a continued quest and they can feel empowered in, in doing that. No, that's an excellent response. And on behalf of both my, you know, me and of course uh, my co-host Kara, this is the kind of conversation we not only want to promote, but we're hoping people are having inside of their homes and via, you know, internet and other places, because you took an entrepreneurial approach. And I often tell people the difference between an entrepreneur and a bureaucrat is that a bureaucrat will see an opportunity and call it a problem. An entrepreneur mm-hmm. will see a problem and call it an opportunity. And you were doing this before COVID-19 and all the challenges. So, Thank you so much for for leading and having a good conversation. And we'd love to stay in contact and we'd love to learn more about the work you're doing with some of the the moms in the Phoenix area. I've got uh, a niece who lives there and and some other family members. So good. Absolutely. Appreciate the time, you guys. Thanks, Kelly. Great talking to you. Take care. Ah, what a great conversation with Kelly Smith of Prenda. We we are back with the tweet of the week. Just a little bit of levity here, a little bit of like really the just amazingly absurd. And Gerard, this is um, a tweet about your home state out of Fairfax County, Virginia, from Alec McGillis via the Washington Post. And the tweet says, what? One of the largest school districts in the country is justifying keeping bus drivers on the payroll by having them drive empty buses along their usual routes. So what was that? What? I was saying? <laughs> no, that, that's but, a yeah. joke. No, listen, listen, it's happening. And what was it that I was saying at the top of the hour about, you know, we need to give districts a little credit. Sometimes bureaucracies are slow to adjust. So this is not adjustment. This is craziness. But listen, and I am all for keeping bus drivers on the payroll, but maybe we, we maybe we could um, find a way. I, I'm sure they're probably not happy about it. I mean, what that's got to be at least when you've got the kids on the bus, you've got like human interaction. You've, it's probably a harder job than I could ever do. I got to tell you that much. I can't drive my own children in my Toyota, <laughs> let alone keep keep kids calm on a bus. But I can't imagine the drivers themselves are very happy about this. Um are you gonna go? You gonna go looking for the buses, Gerard? Uh, no, but it gives a new meaning to wheels on the bus. Go round and round, <laughs> round and round, round and round. I know Fairfax. I've got friends there. I know people who have the children there. I, if I weren't speaking to you, I would think it was a joke. But you've got to be kidding that this is what we're doing. I'm all about jobs. I'm all about keeping families together. I'm not trying to. You know, yeah. belittle this in any should, way, but you should definitely try and figure it out, right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just a little bit of the absurd for your day to end your day here, Gerard, after this great conversation that we've had. And we'll be back next week with Jung Chang. She's the author of best selling books, Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China and Mao. The Unknown Story. Very much looking forward to that. Until then, Gerard, I hope, I know you can't eat chocolate, but go just do something. Have a beer. Have a beer. I'll have a beer for you. Okay. Fantastic. I will talk to you in a week, my friend. Have a good one. You too. <laughs>